Hey everyone, my name is Sambal Siddiqui and I'm the mayor of Cambridge. And I'm Alana Mellon, vice mayor, and this is our podcast, Women Are Here. Hello, how are it's you? Been a, it's been a while. It's been a month. Oh my gosh, where does time go? Where does what time is time? Go? What is time? So okay. I haven't been sleeping well, and um, which is, you know, just part of the course. Uh, but one of the reasons it's been is because I have been thinking about the Challenger disaster. Um, it's a documentary on um, Netflix right now. And I did a high school, I think ninth grade, I did a whole project on the Challenger disaster. And okay, it just is it's making me sad. So it's funny that you should say that because I think I was in ninth grade when the Challenger actually exploded. <laughs> like I watched it in high school. Yeah, um, yeah. I might've been older than that, but it's, I just think it's so funny. Like. I, I always born. forget how much younger you are than me. And then I, when we were talking about it, I was like, man, I watched that like in high school and you were like, what? I was like, I wasn't born, you know? <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But it was so sad. I mean, we all had like, everyone brought TVs into their classrooms and we all were like watching because Krista McAuliffe was a teacher. I think she, she's from Massachusetts, right? Like it was yeah, a huge yeah. deal. And um I just remember it like ex- exploding. We all like kind of like looked around like, wait, what just happened? And our teachers kind of immediately like had understood what it was. And it just was so awful like to just watch something explode mm-hmm, in real mm-hmm. time like that. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've not watched it in real time and it's still this ugh, hard to watch. And knowing that it was because of, of course, men's decisions and uh, that led to the challenger taking off. At anyway, NASA or, or somewhere else? It was this company, and, and NASA was involved, obviously. But watch the documentary, listeners. Um, and then I went down a ra- rabbit hole about the Columbia disaster, because that was in 2003. And so I remember right. watching that live, um, or, you know, when it was happening. Anyway, so if you do want to sleep, don't watch, the, don't watch those types of things before you go to bed. But well, I... I'm actually watching the Netflix show Away, which is about, yeah. <laughs> it's about this, like the first, you know, NASA trip to Mars. And um, it's very, uh, it's Hillary very Swank. intense. Yeah. Hillary Swank is so good. Um, she's the, the commander of the ship and um, it is filled. Every episode is filled with some kind of disaster that happens right now that they're, they're like, they have no water and they're hurtling towards Mars, but they they're all dehydrated and they're not sure they're going to make it. But anyways, it's pretty good. Um, and it's not, it's so far removed from real life. Like right. for me, it's like, this is so not something that's happening to me right now. It's just so escapism. I just feel like sometimes I watch a show or <laughs> I'm like, well, that's too much like what's happening in real life. Right. This is just like, kind of like, are you, you're almost done. Um, I think I have a couple more episodes, but it's really good. That, um, there's Hillary Swank is married to this guy. Um, I don't remember what his name is, but he was also on The Good Wife, and I loved him on The Good Wife. So they're oh, like really I cute. love him. Yeah, what is his name? Oh my gosh, I forget. But he looks like my friend Jeff, and so I actually emailed Jeff. Um, it was like a mentor of mine, um, and I was like, Jeff, like you look like this guy. He was like, Oh yeah, I've been confused for him. Uh, That's so funny. Said, oh my god, I'm gonna. S- text you the picture of Jeff because he came to my inaugur- the inauguration. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, he's like, really good. I love that guy. Really Whatever good. his name is. Um, yes, yeah. Away, definitely watch it. 
don't watch the Challenger uh, documentary if you want to sleep ever again. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Oh, Josh like, Charles. Josh Charles. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just <laughs> such a forgettable name, Josh yeah, Charles. Josh Charles. <laughs> anyway, we do have a lot to talk about. Today. Yes, we do have a lot to talk about today because it's been a while. So we're going to get to it. So um, a quick COVID update. The citywide positivity rate is 0.16%, which is really, really low. And kudos to all the residents who have been um, social distancing and making sure that you're staying safe and staying healthy. Um, it looks like Boston, I read yesterday, is going to be heading into the red zone this weekend, which um, is a little concerning, I think, for what we're looking at for the fall and going into the fall uh, here in Massachusetts. But weirdly, Governor Baker said yesterday that 10 people can dine together inside or outside of restaurants, and he's allowed customers to sit at the bar as long as they're regular, you know, socially distanced. I just feel like, you know, the state should be prioritizing, um, you know, getting kids back to school um, and providing the support that they need to make that happen. Uh, you know, expanding indoor dining to me just feels like the wrong move. Uh, instead, I feel like the state could be giving the restaurants the financial and regulatory support that they've been like demanding and advocating for um, at the state house. Like, you know, I, I'm really frustrated. Yeah. I know I, I personally want to make sure that our restaurants survive, but I also want to make sure that our kids go back to school. So I think that there are other levers that we could be pulling right now at the state level to ensure that restaurants um, actually weather the storm. I, you know, I think 23% of our restaurants in Massachusetts have already closed. So it's getting to be, I understand the, you know, the desire to want to make sure that you're, we're supporting our restaurants and making sure they can stay open, but I'm just not sure this is the right approach now that like my kids and everybody's kids are sitting in front of their computers for six hours a day trying to do school. So um, I also wanted to give everybody an update about what's happening here in Cambridge with our college students, because I think everyone has been seeing sort of nationwide and even closer to home at BC and Providence College that there have been some real COVID uh, clusters happening at colleges, largely due to, you know, get togethers. So Harvard and MIT both have a, a daily dashboard that they update um, that lets us know how many positive cases and how many tests that they've performed every day. That's updated daily. So just if you're like me and you're anxious about the level of positive cases in your community, you can look every single day on those websites. And I, I, I have spent a lot of time tweeting them out, but I will definitely do it again today in case anybody's interested. But just for everybody's knowledge, um, Harvard uh, in the last seven days have tested I have performed over 16,000 tests and have uh, found five positive cases. Four of those five are faculty and staff, and only one of them was an undergraduate student. MIT has tested over 12,000 students um, and staff and faculty uh, this past week and have had five positive cases also. So those are actually now, I had asked um, last month in an economic development committee hearing that I chaired if those could be both of those or those numbers could be shared on our COVID-19 dashboard, the city's COVID-19 dashboard. So those are up there now uh, at cambridgema.gov slash COVID-19 slash case count. So you can find those updated daily on our own website too, if you don't want to kind of toggle back and forth. But I think it's an important way for our community members and residents to understand what's happening at our um, local universities. Cause I know it has been a concern. <laughs> it's been a concern for me too. So. Yeah. I, I think two things that I've 
thought about when you were um, talking on the Baker reopening, um, the saying 10 people can dine together inside or outside um, that piece. In Cambridge, I, I did um, one thing I am wondering about is where our clusters are coming out, coming from, or if there are clusters. And I think we have a lead epidemiologist, um, her name's Anna Kaplan, who basically knows where. Um, you know where the cases are coming from and i would be curious how many have come from the restaurants um just as a purely um you know information point uh, but i do agree with you i think it's I, I i think yes we have a low positivity rate and um how do we you know reopen further reopen schools um versus other um you know other industries given um, the just the importance but I think what we're going to hear uh, is that you know maybe I, I am I am thinking about the other you know side and I think they may point to the fact that maybe there just hasn't been um, much many cases that have come from dining indoors uh, specifically mm -hmm. but uh, I think hopefully we'll have that information soon so uh, on the testing piece I think we've you know, Cambridge has, you know, definitely provided, I think we're over 12,000 free COVID tests um, to people uh, since last spring through the mobile testing program. And you can get tested regardless of whether you have symptoms or feel ill, uh, you know, no health insurance RD is required and um, testing is located in the, right now is at the Russell Youth Center in West Cambridge and the Pisani Center. Um, I think one of the things we both heard from folks is these appointments fill up so fast, right? Like they're they're basically you, you click and then they're usually gone uh, once they become available. And I think there's been a lot of residents who have upset about not having like on-demand testing available. Uh, and so I think this is something where we found out that you can just go if without an appointment and walk in. Right. Um, you've heard from folks. I, you know, I've walked in. Uh, I know others have walked in. They're not advertising. You know, folks aren't advertising that. <clears throat> um, so, yeah. So folks not, are not advertising that. I. We both have talked about why it is important for maybe to figure out. You know, how many slots are actually available, right, at these sites, uh, and <clears throat> let our residents know that. They potentially could walk in. Uh, so we'll be hearing more about this on Tuesday. Um, but it, I certainly think that I think we should be able to provide more mobile testing. Yeah, I've, um, it's funny. So I, the last time that I went, they were, I, I actually got a slot and I got there and they're like, oh, we don't see you, but there was nobody there. Um, so I was able to just register right there and get right in. And, and that's been the case. I mean, it's not like there's a million people in line mm -hmm. um, and they do take, they do take you if, um, if you're not in the system or if you, you know, I think a lot of people I know have just kind of walked, walked up in. and said, Oh, um, you know, I've just you know, like, I was here, I couldn't get an appointment, but can you take me? And they, and they do. So, I mean, I think I don't remember the exact number and we can ask on Tuesday, but I feel like it's like between 3000 and 4,000 slots per week um, <clears throat> that are, you know, available. And, I, I just do you know some on your calls like our other um, you know neighboring communities offering this type of free available no. testing for asymptomatic, asymptomatic folks no 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's amazing that Cambridge has been able to offer almost 12,000 free COVID-19 mm-hmm. tests um, to, to asymptomatic people. I mean, I, I know I have a good friend who, you know, she wanted to take her kids and see her mom. Um, and, you know, they all got tested. They live here in Cambridge, but her mom lived in Watertown and like her, their mom, her mom just couldn't get a test because, you know, she didn't have symptoms. They don't have a, a city program. And so it's just really kind of stark the difference between Cambridge and some other neighboring communities and that, you know, we could talk about testing for a long time and the failures uh, of our national uh, government response. Um, but I think Cambridge is, you know, could it be better? Could we have more slots? Could we have more mobile testing? Uh, absolutely. Could we be doing better um, surveillance testing? A hundred percent. And I think that was um, one of the policy orders that, you know, you put in and I was happy to co-sponsor on Monday night around um, additional testing um, that we could be doing to do that surveillance testing, because I think that's a, a critical piece of this. And it's definitely the next step for us is to think about um, surveillance testing and what that looks like. And um, that that's not the PCR testing, which gets sent out to the broad. It's a different type of testing around antigens, right? Yep. So. I don't know if you have any updates on that or we will continue to update you as we move forward and figure that program out. But I think, you know, you know, Sumble, you've taken the lead on, on talking to probably every, you know, (laughs) place that exists here in Cambridge that's doing that type of work and and trying to put together. um, Yeah. I've been really focused on the the testing piece and, you know, right. We were able to announce last week that, um, School staff who will be working in person will be provided with free COVID-19 testing twice per week uh, through a partnership with the Broad. Um, and, you know, we're probably among the, a few school districts, uh, you know, really implementing a COVID-19 testing strategy. So, you know, we're working very closely, obviously, with the public health department who will hire and manage uh, additional health aides uh, who, under the supervision of a school-based um, our RN will provide COVID-19 uh, COVID testing for symptomatic uh, students and staff so uh, as well and so it, it'll be available at each school which you know I think is very important and so testing is you know really testing um, contact tracing uh, is a key strategy and I think one of the reasons why our city's uh, positivity rate um, is the way it is um, and you know the we're, we're, we're taking um, a lot of other safety and health precautions uh, you know really focusing on air ventilation quality through co2 meters HEPA air scrubbers box fans hiring additional custodial staff um, increased cleaning and sanitation procedures uh, you know we've installed about 100 new sinks and hand sanitizer dispensers uh, we have you know a lot of PPE um, including PPE that was donated to my office um, by uh, the uh, Taiwanese uh, Boston group. Um, they donated over 20,000 um, face masks. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of other procedures in place. So uh, as we as we return um, to schools uh, starting October 13th, for those families who opted in in person, uh, and really, it's as you've heard, it's the the youngest learners right now that we're and those with the greatest needs that we're prioritizing for in person. And as we speak, we're figuring out the phases of who are we bringing back next. 
um, there's a lot of, you know, right, right now we, we've both gotten emails of, you know, families saying, you know, given our low rate start, please, I think let's open to more right now. Um, and, you know, I understand the urgency. Uh, I think we're, we're just really, there's some, you know, there's hiring, de there's staff details, hiring details that are um, still are in the mix. So, but as soon as I have the information on what the next phase is, I'll, I'll be, I'll definitely share. Yeah, I think the importance of testing is so critical. I mean, if you look at, I believe it was BC who has had a tremendous outbreak due to their like swimming and diving team. Um, they aren't doing the twice or three times weekly testing that Harvard and MIT are doing. So, you know, they tested everybody on arrival, but then just did random testing of the, you know, true surveillance testing. Um, of 1500 students a week and it wasn't catching those those cases when they turned positive right and so then they don't go into quarantine they don't know they're sick they didn't have a procedure and so i think that you know what that translates to in elementary schools is if you don't have a testing protocol um you can't find cases early quarantine you know make sure teachers stay home students stay home i think it's key to making sure that we have an uninterrupted uh, educational experience. I mean, I'm I'm just watching friends in other districts whose kids have gone back to school who um, now are quarantining. Right. Right. There are positive cases in the school, so now they're home for two weeks. And I think what we would like to do, and what would be optimal, obviously, is to get our kids, our youngest learners, who I know, um, you know, parents of JK, K, and first graders who actually just have to sit there with their children online to. To facilitate. I mean, that's just, people can't work. Um, they can't do their own jobs and also sit right next to their kids six hours a day to make sure that they're on these Zoom calls. And they're completely developmentally inappropriate at that age. So getting our youngest learners back into school has to be our priority. Um, but I think that testing protocol and making sure that they have an uninterrupted time as much as possible, Right, and get into a schedule and get into a routine. I think that is going to be the critical piece. So thank you right. for working hard on that. I hope that we can expand our asymptomatic testing and, tw and twice weekly testing to students once they return. I know that there has been some pushback um, from some of our health professionals that it's not um, you know, developmentally appropriate at this time and this age. However, I would say as the parent of somebody of two children that have been um, hiding in closets uh, for active shooter drills for the last, since they were three years old, I, I don't know how we can in good conscience say that those two things um, cannot happen. And right, like how we can say that we're gonna do active shooter drills, but we're not gonna quickly swab around their noses twice a week to keep them safe. So right. more, more, more to more say on that. that. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing I did wanna just add was we did put in a policy order on wastewater testing which um, is wastewater, it's sewage. Um, it, it includes water from household building use, toilets, showers, sinks that can contain um, human fecal waste as well as water from you know, non-household sources. Um, and it can be tested for RNA for, from SARS, uh, you know, which is the virus that you know, causes COVID. And so we, um, we asked for a policy order, <clears throat> a policy to, see if we could do a pilot in um, Cambridge uh, itself. Uh, it's wastewater testing has been used for years as an effective method for detecting any virus that can be transmitted 
asymptomatically and it was instrumental in the global polio um, uh, you know erudition initiative and so it, 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 you, the things I have learned seriously, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I mean talking about poop a lot is not yeah. something I thought you, you probably thought you were gonna do as mayor but I know that Somerville is doing their own testing um, yep. right in Somerville you know they're opening up man halls and doing it right on site Right now, um, at a statewide level, we're doing this at Deer Island, but um, you know that's the the larger area wastewater treatment plant. But that doesn't necessarily say it doesn't necessarily flag a particular city or town. It's like in the greater Boston area that uses Deer Island. Um, we are detecting high levels of SARS or the COVID nineteen virus. Um, this would be extremely localized, and I think that it's another important tool just to keep an eye on. Um, clusters and where they're coming from before they become an issue. Yeah, and some major places like the University of Arizona have been able to catch these outbreaks because of that. Um, anyway, more to come on that and, and so we're we happy to share. So what else is going on? Well, I'd be happy to talk about poop all the whole entire podcast, but um, we do have uh, the city manager uh, has a 18 month contract extension. Uh, this week and last week. We um, have been talking about this at the city council level, both meetings this past Monday night and the previous Monday night. So our city manager's uh, contract is up in January of 2021, and he had requested um, a contract extension, and there was sort of a lot of going back and forth um, over the last, I would say, since January around um, the contract negotiations and the terms and how long the city manager was interested in staying and how long the city council was interesting in um, keeping the manager on. But so I, you may have heard, but last week we had a really long meeting um, after our summer break. <laughs> and I say break in quotes, you guys can't hear me, but it was definitely break. not a break, not a break, not a break. Um, but the last week, included an item from Councillor Simmons, who is the chair of the Government Operations Committee, that um, we should extend the uh, city manager's contract for 18 months from next January to the end of, to end in July 2022, after negotiations with the city manager conversations, and for him to receive a salary increase of 2.5%. We got uh, to this item around one o'clock in the morning, um, and it was fairly, I, I would say it was a little bit confusing. There were some procedural things. People had some questions around the contract. Um, and then there was, in general, I think some question around the 2.5% increase, which was phrased as a cost of living adjustment in Councillor Simmons' communication. Um, and the thing that confused people was he already gets a cost of living adjustment, just like any other non-union employee each July, like uh, Stumble and myself just got one. Um, anybody who's not a member of a union and doesn't already have a contracted COLA adjustment um, gets uh, an increase every July. So in the end, we voted to approve the extension and the increase. Two members voted no, Councillor Zondervan and Sabrina Wheeler. And here's where it got kind of interesting for all you municipal politics nerds out there. Uh, Councillor Nolan, who voted yes that evening um, for the contract extension, she filed for what's called reconsideration on Wednesday, which meant the item went back on the agenda this past Monday night for what's called a reconsideration vote. So anyone who was on the prevailing side of a vote can file for reconsideration. Um, in this case, it was noon on Wednesday after the meeting. 
so that at the next meeting, if there's a simple majority of the council to vote for the reconsideration, the item can be reopened and voted again and might have a different outcome. So Monday night, the reconsideration vote that Councillor Nolan put on the agenda failed to receive the five required votes it needed to open the vote. But we all really discussed why we would or would not support the reconsideration vote. And I think personally for me, just to, just to let people know, um, my vote to support the contract extension wasn't going to change, so I voted no um, on the consideration vote. So then we vote. Then, then we had a very long conversation because we had a clean and updated copy of the city manager's contract that we discussed at length, and then voted to approve and move forward. And um, those of us who were there in the Sullivan Chamber signed it that evening, and the rest will sign it, I think, by tomorrow. And um, the city managers. Uh, uh, will be with us now until July 2022. And um, over the next several months, we will be talking about a process by which we will be looking for the next city manager um, who would hopefully start in uh, July of 2022. So that's yeah. kind of, that was kind of the story. It was a long um, conversation. And I think that was my first reconsideration vote since being- Mine too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, challenging um, process and a lot of lessons learned um, and a lot of lessons learned. <laughs> so I think now if we were going to write how to how to on a contract extension, we'd be able to really fill that page up. Um, but, you know, I think I said something similar to you uh, on why I supported the uh, extension and I look forward to working with the council on this this new search which i think will take quite a while um but excited about it so we did have a special meeting last night on our city's charter speaking of like policy wonky right, stuff right, right. <laughs> and whatever review process would look like should we embark on it so the city charter is like the city's constitution it guides how our government works so if you've ever wondered why we have two-year terms or why we have a strong city manager and a weak mayor system, meaning that the mayor is not directly resident, elected by the residents, but rather voted on by other council members, that's because that's how it's written in our charter. So our form of government is called Plan E, and there are only two Plan E forms of government in the state, Cambridge and Lowell. And our charter has not been updated in 80 years, since 1940, since it was adopted. So interestingly, we had a strong mayor system until 1940, but rampant corruption caused um, this 50-person charter commission to come together and adopt the Plan E strong city manor, manager charter. So here we are. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting last night, um, talking about how uh, we ended up adopting Plan E to, to stop this rampant corruption. But then, you know, other cities and towns um, have a in their charter, they have an automatic charter review process some number of years. So Watertown, for example, um, their, their charter states that they have to look at their charter and update it every 10 years, and they're about to embark on that process right now. So we don't have such a provision in our charter. So if we were to change our charter, um, one of the recommendations was to actually add in an automatic charter review some, you know, at some number of years, uh, 10 years, five years, et cetera. So, we actually were really, um, thank you for pulling that meeting together. It was really great to have the Collins Center for Public Policy from UMass Boston. Um, they really provided some really good information on the charter review and change process and how it works and the different routes that we could take via 
either a home rule charter or a special act charter. Both are really long processes and very involved and both end um, with the voters of Cambridge voting on the municipal election ballot to update the charter or not. So at the end of the day, it's not the council that votes on this. It is um, you, the residents of Cambridge. Um, so that's really interesting. And I would say that based on the conversation last night, that both are at least a two year process. I was trying to get them to nail down on a, a timeline, but it, you know, even two years for the home rule charter seems like at the best case scenario, it's more probably like five. And then the special act is probably two years, but then you have to have it on the municipal election. Like you can't, you have to wait until the next municipal election. So even if you had it done in 10 months, you might have to wait, you know, a year, year and a half to put it on the ballot. Um, I would, one of the things that I brought up last night is that the city council itself needs to have a facilitated conversation about what problem that we're trying to solve uh, through a charter review and charter change process. You know, are we just trying to modernize the language to be more gender neutral? Uh, so throughout the document, the city manager um, and I think mayor is referred to as him, giant eye roll. Um, and then also update other forms and items around like a capital improvement process, uh, for example. Or are we really trying to move towards a strong mayor form of government, which is a huge change, right? To move away from a city manager council government to a, a mayor council government. So I didn't really think that there seemed to be a clear consensus around what problem we would be trying to solve and that we would need to do that before we would um, appoint an advisory board to work on charter review and change. So I think what we ended up talking about last night was maybe the Collins Center facilitating that conversation with the council um, to you know, have them come back and really talk about with the council what problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. Yeah, that, learned a lot. The, yeah, yeah, but I do think you know, in any, in any policy, right, or any change, it really has to start from a foundation of what are we trying to solve for? Um, because otherwise we could just be spinning our wheels for a long time or starting a process that doesn't make sense. Um, so really having a solid foundation and a shared understanding, I think is the most critical piece. Yeah, so that was really interesting. Uh, so more to come on that. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that we <clears throat> also, I think it was not this last, meeting with the meeting before we adopted a new ordinance um, called the Tenants Rights and Resources Notification, um, <clears throat> which uh, I'd worked on, you know, this summer um, with Bora Penzac and CDD and was really happy that we were able to, um, you know, move this forward. And it goes effect on uh, October 14th. And the purpose is to inform Cambridge residents uh, of housing rights and resources available to them, which is one of the things that came out of the tenant assessment task force that um, I had chaired last term. And so under the ordinance, <clears throat> basically we'll um, be uh, making sure that uh, landlords are providing residents uh, a notification of their housing rights and resources and at least signing and when a landlord uh, or foreclosing owner serves a tenant or former um, ho homeowner with a uh, notice to quit or notice uh, of lease non-renewal or uh, expiration. So uh, the, the tenant or former homeowner must be provided with a notice of basic, basic housing rights and resources, including a list of organizations available to assist tenants and or 
former homeowners on a on a form or forms prepared uh, by the city. And so there's more details on that. We're rolling out educational materials uh, focused on responsibilities, tips, and resources consistent with the provisions of the ordinance. And so there's more to come on that. The the state's eviction um, moratorium ends, I think, uh, shortly after. I think it's October 17th or 19th. Should know. So I had some questions on that, actually. Thank you for working on that. I think, especially with the October eviction, 17th. Yeah, I think, especially with the eviction moratorium uh, coming right up. I mean, I any and all information that our tenants can be provided with. Because I think that the majority of the calls that I get, and I'm sure you get as well from um, tenants that have been served a notice to quit, is that they just don't know what their, they don't know what their rights are, but they also don't have the resources. So I, in general, either the council and counselors, for people who feel empowered to contact them or know somebody, um, really all I do is give out those resources or connect them to um, you know, the legal resources or the housing resources that they need. But there's lots of people who don't know us. There's lots of people that don't feel empowered to contact us or reach out to us. So to arm every single tenant with um, that same level of resources and, and connection is so critical. Um, and I think this is going to be a huge game changer and it's going to be like absolutely necessary with this more, you know, the eviction moratorium coming up. My question, I guess, is around that education piece. Um, like, are we doing some kind of postcard to all residents, Sumble, um, just to let them know? Because I'm assuming some of this information will just also be online as well. Um, so for people who may not have gotten a notice to quit, but are worried they're about to get one, right? are we sending out some kind of information to all residents to say, um, you know, this is coming, it's October 14th. Um, if you need more information, it's here, you know, on this place on our website, um, it, you know, cause this may not be directly affecting you right now and you may not getting a, be getting a packet of information, but um, here's where to go. Yeah, I believe that's the plan. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen the materials yet, but um, there's definitely going to be some kind of awareness, heads up, this is happening. Um, but I, I can get back to folks on that and you figure it out. Yeah, I would love to, I would love to know. I mean, I, I love the postcards that the city sends out. I mean, I think it's such an effective tool. It goes out to yeah. every, every household and, you know, that way you're, you're capturing everyone, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. So, all right. So more, more notes on that later. Um, one of the other things we talked about this past week at the city council um, was an idea about closing Harvard Square to vehicular traffic. And I want to tell you, Sumble, that when I, <laughs> I a long time ago threatened to run for city council on a two-platform, um, like a, just these two things. One is closing Harvard Square to vehicular traffic, and two was putting some sort of cafe or something on the Cambridge Common. <laughs> because as a young parent or a parent of young children, I should say, um, there was never, there wasn't an opportunity like in other places where you could just go and, and grab lunch or anyways, that, that was my two, like my two joke platforms. So I'm, I'm excited actually to see one of those, um, you know, putting forward, I think it's really, it is a really critical issue um, around a more broad effort to both support our uplifting, struggling small businesses, and then also promoting pedestrian and cyclist safety in Harvard Square, 
We've had two deaths in Harvard Square recently, a pedestrian death last year and a cyclist death several weeks ago. And the city is just not acting with enough urgency to keep our vulnerable road users safe and really fight towards our, our goal of vision zero, you know, not losing a single pedestrian or cyclist uh, on our streets. So um, Councillor Simmons had exercised her charter right to um, this order at the previous week's meeting, right after the break. And she and Councillor Nolan offered new amendments this week. So um, the amendments ask for a pilot uh, rather than going forward and, and pedestrianizing Harvard Square. So a pilot of doing that first on weekends and some weeknights, and then asking that a formal stakeholder committee charged with studying the traffic impacts be established. So that's really around thinking about, you know, if we were to, you know, at some point pedestrianize Harvard Square, which I actually think is a great idea. Um, there are a lot of impacts to be thought about in terms of diverting traffic um, and what happens with deliveries, you know, so working with the small business community, working with Harvard, working with the neighborhood, um, and just trying to think about the best way to do that. Um, so it's so it's two different things, right? We're talking about a pilot. Um, on weekends and um, possibly some weeknights, and then really with an eye towards, could we really do this someday um, and someday soon? Because as I said, we've lost two residents on the streets of Harvard Square um, too recently. I mean, yeah. having yeah. two deaths um, in one year is just, that's not the direction we need to be going. We, we need to be really thinking about how we're gonna be protecting our vulnerable road users, particularly if we want more people <laughs> to be walking and cycling rather than being in cars. Um, you know, are we a pro progressive city? Um, and if so, then we need to be moving much more quickly on providing safe alternative routes and uh, alternative modes um, of transportation for people. So- um, Yeah, I look forward to this. Last time we had put in something similar, so this is some more detailed um, you know, call a so I was happy to support it. Yeah, thank you for supporting it. I think I think at the end of the day, um, yeah, we put something in last last term around just closing some Saturdays, like they do open Newberry's right. or open Newberry Street, which you know is I don't know if ever anyone's ever been down there, but it's like really fun. You just close down the street, and everyone's walking around and eating outside, and um, you know, it's just a way to take back um, a space that used to be for cars and make it for people and you know, we, we're seeing that kind of across the city, like, you know, we're taking surface parking lots and making them into spaces for art or Craigie on Main took over a, a surface parking lot that has six parking spaces. And now it's like this great outdoor dining. So it's been amazing to think about um, the possibilities um, post COVID and what, you know, what we've been able to do during COVID that seemed before to be so impossible. Uh, and now, you know, people are really using their imaginations and making the city a little bit uh, more alive and uh, more pedestrian and cyclist friendly. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, awesome. So more to come on that, hopefully. Um, one thing we both wanted to remind you of is to get your flu shot. Um, my arm so still hurts from you. Mine too. <laughs> so I did a flu shot at CVS and then I was like, tag Alana on Facebook to go do it too, and she did. Um, I'm, so, I'm so good at being tagged at something and doing it. I know you're really good. You were like, oh, this is fun. And then you did, and then we, you tagged Patty. So I know my picture was so bad. Yours looked so cute. I was like, oh, here we go. No, Anyways. I was like, I told the woman, I was like, is it okay if I take, get a flu shot? 
picture. Um, so <laughs> we're going to be um, running flu connect. The Cambridge Health Public Health Department is going to be running flu clinics. Um, they're wrapping up right now. Um, the po the schedule will be posted soon. Um, it's not posted uh, yet, but uh, there will be flu clinics starting uh, in October. Yeah, one of the things that I brought up last week at the um, council meeting when we were talking about our COVID update and flu clinics, and I think it's really important for us to have a drive-through flu clinic um, like they do with the COVID testing, because I think a lot of people are really wary about going into a place, um, being inside. So um, I did hear yesterday that there is a plan to do that, and I think I'm excited about where it's going to be. Um, because I think it's going to be an important tool to get people um, both signed up in and out of a flu clinic um, really, really safely during this. Um, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And I think what our public health department is trying to do is make sure that um, people are getting flu shots so that it doesn't exacerbate the um, this fall and winter and um, put a strain on our limited, uh, you know, physicians and, and healthcare facilities. So one thing I have seen other places are setting up is, you know, really going to the elderly buildings and, right, you know, going in the same way that you maybe think if there is a vaccine uh, one day for COVID, um, making sure, you know, it's equitable and getting to the, you know, especially elderly residents to go to um, the, the senior buildings. But I, I'm glad that they've, I think it, they've, they are figuring out a way to do something at least mobile that people can drive to. So, well, it's funny that you should say that because um, I was at CVS yesterday getting my flu shot, and the woman asked me, and I was so depressed afterwards. She was like, "Are you? Do you need the double dose?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and she said, "Yeah, if you're over 55, you need the double dose, and we're out of it right now." And I was like, very depressed that she thought I was over 55, but also I didn't realize that. Um, that they get a different higher dose if you're over 55 of the flu shot. So, yeah, um, I mean, if you're, yeah, it, I think who the people who are at risk for the flu and COVID-19, they're like, you know, adults 65 or older. Right. Um, but, yeah, yeah. That double dose, I, I learned that from my mom. <laughs> I was like, well, can, I, then I was thinking, like, maybe I do want a double dose. I think he's like super safe, but anyways, anyway, anyway we'll away. share <laughs> details about that soon. Yeah, that actually, um, hopefully that will be up online on um, cambridgema.gov slash flu. I think they told us by the end of the week. So hopefully yeah. by tomorrow or Monday. And so you'll be able to find out all the places you can go to get a flu shot. But I know my doctor's office still has them. I know CVS, other than the double dose, they still have them. I, I think we both went to Central Square. And the Rite Aids. The Rite Aids. So definitely do not put this off because, um, you know, the earlier the better. So get it done. Tag us on Twitter if you get it done with a photo and we'll, yeah. um, we'll retweet it because I think it's, people are, have got a lot on their minds right now, but this is a critical, critical issue in our community. So very easy to do. Um, so I think the last thing that we have to talk about is that the Tobin Vaseline Upper School uh, reconstruction comes along with um, 1% for the arts of hard construction. So it's going to be about a $230 million project. So there's about $2.3 million for a little over $2 million that is going to be spent on public art. 
Um, this is something that we talked extensively about during the Mayor's Arts Task Force that um, it previously capped out at, um, I think, $100,000 or $200,000. Um, and one of the things that the Arts Task Force was, did was make sure that that 1% for arts really was 1% and not just a nominal fee. So there is a, um, a call for artists and call for ideas out on the Cambridge Arts website. So the city of Cambridge is actually seeking artists to create a major public artwork outside the city's new Tobin Montessori and Vaseline Upper Schools Complex as part of reconstruction of the education and community hub at 997 Vaseline. And it's going to be a $650,000 commission. Um, so that's actually a pretty big one. If uh, it looks like proposals are due um, October 26th uh, by 5 p.m. They're taking electronic submissions due on slideroom.com. So if you are an artist, you know an artist, um, you want to spread that word out, it's, a, it's going to be a great project at a really beautiful new school. Um, the rest of the $2.1 million, we are currently trying to decide how it, we're going to use it to support arts and artists in the community and not necessarily be a hard public art piece. Um, it was one of the things we also talked about in the Arts Task Force is how we can use um, the 1% for arts to have a more broader definition. So um, check that out, because I think that's going to be a really exciting piece um, to put your name on and, and live on at an educational facility for a long time. So one other thing that I wanted to mention before we forget, uh, my office and uh, the Cambridge Housing Authority's Workforce Program, we've partnered with a local nonprofit organization, Elevate Youth, to launch um, a local parks program in Cambridge this week. Um, it's a program that's in person and outdoors for students in grades four and five who normally would not have the opportunity to experience the outdoors in a structured environment. And the program is going to be running from 3.30 to 5.30 on Mondays and Wednesdays um, from yesterday uh, to October 28th at Danahy and Senate. Um, so if you know of fourth and fifth graders, please do, um, you know, reach out uh, and we are accepting applications uh, until capacity is met. So uh, I will be tweeting out some links later today. Um, you know, we're not at capacity yet. Uh, they, some of the kids did have an opportunity yesterday and the pictures are just so cute. They're having so much fun outdoors, looking at butterflies and birds and, and so forth. So anyone, um, I want to go. I know me too. It's like you are really, yeah. So please, um, please definitely, uh, if you know, uh, if you're listening and you know of a fourth and a fifth grader, um, contact me and we'll hopefully get you signed up. Okay, awesome. I think I know lots of fourth and fifth graders. Um, oh, good. Okay, so I think that's our weekly, our monthly wrap up. <laughs> uh, thanks for being with us today. We always appreciate our listeners. And if they of course, as always, if there's anything you want us to talk about, please tweet at us. I'm at A-M-M-A-L-L-O-N. And I'm at, uh, I think it's, is it Mayor Siddiqui now? I don't even Correct. know. Correct, yes. Okay, it's Mayor Siddiqui. <laughs> Mayor Siddiqui, A-M-M-A-L-L-O-N. Tweet at us, call us, yeah. email us. We would love to hear from you. We thank we'll, you for joining us. Yeah. We'll hopefully see you soon. We'll, we'll, um, we'll talk about more. Not We don't have a meeting next Monday, but... Uh, all right. Happy Yom Kippur. Yes. Yes. Good fast for all who are um, celebrating. And uh, we will talk to you soon.
Bye. Bye.